Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are today with 2012's Would You Rather. Another requested film. Yes. This one was requested recently on an Instagram poll. I feel like especially lately, we we have not had a vision and we are listening to you. We are listening to you. We have things coming up, but for now in this kind of strange, like August void, we need some assistance. And so far y'all have been delivering. Yes. Spooky season is figured out <laughs> and we're very excited about what we're doing for spooky season. But yes, in the interim, we love requests. So keep them coming. So yeah. Would you rather 2012? I didn't realize Britney Snow was in this movie. I think Britney Snow in horror movies is becoming one of my new favorite things because she's in X. And although we have not seen X yet, I just have heard nothing but good things. And obviously she's known for her sapphic leaning character in Pitch Perfect, which I just love. Like it just cracks me up that that's like a through line throughout the entire series. <laughs> Definitely one of my celebrity crushes. Speaking of Pitch Perfect, the first Pitch Perfect came out the same year as this movie. So she was busy. Booked and busy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we also, of course, talked about Britney Snow in our Prom Queens episode. She's in 2008's Prom Night which we did not like, but a sign of the times. Yeah, I think every actor has at least a horror movie that they've been in, and not all of them are great. (laughs) Not all of them could be Johnny Depp in Nightmare One, you know what I mean? mm -hmm. But you know, like, sometimes they bring with them a charm of their own. Maybe a little, like, sleepaway camp. That's objectively, in a lot of ways, bad. But it's so charming in other ways. Yeah, I feel like Prom Night just didn't have a good chance to shine because of what it was following and what it was trying to recreate, but also not recreate at the same time. So I'm glad that Britney Snow got a horror movie of her own to really star in and take control of, because although this is a movie where there's not very many laughs or winners, (laughs) I do think it's suspenseful and pretty good. Yeah, I thought that there were some really good moments as well. Some super touching moments. And of course tragic moments. So we talked about Brittany Snow. She's playing our final girl, Iris. And what do you want to do? Do you want to just get into it? Yeah, let's get right into it. Okay. So the movie opens with Iris interviewing for a job as a server. Clips of this interview are intercut with the opening credits. That interview ends. She thanks the manager for his time. And as she leaves, which it doesn't look promising getting this job. We see the credits continue with close-up mobile shots of a body x-ray. At first, we're not quite sure what it is, but of course, it turns out to be an x-ray. So we get context that Iris is back home from college after an accident that had happened and that she has to take care of her brother, Rally, who is sick. And we don't ever really get context as to what the accident is, but it is enough that there is a significant financial strain on them because Rally, I believe, needs a bone marrow transplant and their house is up for sale. Yeah. Lots going on. Yeah. So right at the start, you know, we're stressed. And in the opening scene, Iris is talking to Rally in the kitchen, and she mentions visiting a Dr. Barden, which 
I kept writing Bardem because I was still thinking about Javier Bardem (laughs) from Mother. But no, it is Dr. Barden at the clinic because he had mentioned something to Iris about helping to, quote, cut the costs of what Raleigh's condition is sort of demanding financially. So she is about to set off to see him to see what he's going to propose to her. So she gets to the clinic and meets Dr. Barton and Shepard Lambrick. Can I just say, this is a part of the show I would like to start, which is everything is religious. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And we could talk about this more as we get to know Shepard Lambrick. But immediately, I am struck by the very, I don't know, Christian connotation of a shepherd. And of course, lamb being the first part of Lambrick. So... I think it's interesting that this character, and we'll see him develop, obviously, has this name because of the role that he ends up playing in the movie. Yeah, and typically, you know, we don't give too much attention to the guy actors on this podcast, but Shepard Lambrook is played by Jeffrey Combs, and he is a very iconic horror actor. He is just so good in this role, (laughs) but he is in Reanimator, which is a classic 80s horror movie, which I think we'll cover eventually. And he is just so good at playing this manipulative piece of shit. I'm bearing the lead a little bit here. Obviously, Shepard Lambrick is a little bit of a bad guy. And I can tell he's a bad guy because he's leaving his nutshells all over Dr. Barton's very nice couch. Just leaving them there. He's just cracking open these peanuts and then just sprinkling the shells Like, people have allergies, sir. You're in a doctor's office. And it's interesting that he has such a lack of caring for his surroundings when we are introduced to him as the head of the Lambrick Foundation, which is meant to, you know, serve as kind of like a charity that often helps folks in tough situations pay for whether it's a hospital procedure or something with the home, right? Like he is coming as a benefactor. So it's interesting that we're already seeing kind of like contradictions to that title. Especially when Iris is like, oh, so you can help my brother. And he goes, well, my foundation has the ability to approach the situation. I was very interested in rhetoric in this movie. That's the perfect example of the way that Lamerick mostly uses euphemisms for everything. He can take any phrase and make it sound professional, important, caring, official, right? Like, what? Like, that's just a way to be like, well, maybe. But he doesn't say it like that. So really interesting to hear his use of language. I feel like that ends up being a character trait that I think serves him well as such a fucking villain. But he says after this, that basically if Iris attends a dinner party the following evening at his, I guess, foundation's mansion to play a, quote, game of sorts, then she might have a shot of winning enough money to help with her brother's procedure. He tells her that if she wins, they can get him a donor immediately, that they would skip all of the lines. And Dr. Barton reassures her, saying that he actually won this competition before. And this kind of puts her at ease because, understandably, she's like, is this, like, legit? Like, why are you having me meet with this very strange man who doesn't know how to clean up after himself? (laughs) But Dr. Barton's like, yes, he's delivered on his promise tenfold, makes her feel safe. So Iris leaves and Shepard says she's perfect. 
And then we get a choppy exposition dump that tells us that Iris didn't get the job at the restaurant. We see a longing photo of her parents, which is, I guess, telling us that her parents are dead. We also get flashbacks of a conversation with Irish. (laughs) (laughs) We also get a flashback with Iris and Riley in the car where she reveals that she's not a match for him. So she just can't donate to him. And then we see her taking out Shepard's business card and accepting Lambrick's invite to the dinner party. And the next thing you know, we're at the dinner party. Right away when Iris enters the mansion, she meets Lucas, who doesn't really have a clear backstory. And Cal, who I don't think also has a very clear backstory. I feel like those are two of the most ambiguous folks there. That's something I actually like a lot about this movie is we do get some exposition with some of the other characters as to like what the reasons are they could be here. But we all also know that they're being flown in because one of them says they're from Iowa and another mm. person says they're from like Indiana or something like that. I don't know where this is taking place, but obviously not either of those places because Iris asks if they're local and they're like, oh no, we were flown in for this thing. But we're introduced to some of the other seven dinner guests. We have Cal and Lucas. And then we also have an old woman in a wheelchair named Linda. We have Peter, who is a gambler. We have Conway, who seems like a failed businessman type. We have Amy, who just kind of seems like this brooding, mean girl type. And then we have Travis, who is a Iraq vet. Yes. So after kind of chatting with Cal and Lucas a little bit, the movie cuts back to Dr. Barden's office, and we kind of see the continued conversation between him and Lamerick after Iris left. As he is recalling this conversation, Barden pours himself a drink. It's indicating that he's feeling guilty, or he is harping on this conversation, again, feeding into this idea that something is wrong. Then back at the mansion... Lamrick is talking to his son, Julian, in some room he's getting ready for the evening about the rules. Julian must remain on the outside, simply observing the players in the game he cannot get involved. And I have to say, <laughs> I was watching this and Julian looked so familiar to me. I was like, who is he? And then it hit me. He is played by Robin Lord Taylor, who plays Abernathy Darwin Dunlap in Accepted. Okay. And he's one of my favorite students from the South Harmon Institute of Technology in the 2008 hit movie, Accepted. Okay, it's so funny that you brought him up in that context because I know him as Penguin from Gotham. Oh, shit. He plays Oswald in Gotham and he's so good at playing petulant little shits. Like, that's just, he's so fucking good at it. His face is so smug. He just has this, like, candor about him. And I know him because fucking Penguin is the same. Julian and Penguin are like this very similar characters. So like, he's just so good at playing like entitled little shit. It's just (laughs) him and Jeffrey Combs playing off each other was very fun to watch. But there's also Bevins. And he is, I guess, Lamerick's manservant. And he gets the evening started by first confiscating everyone's phones, keys, etc. And then shepherding them off to the dining room as non-diegetic spooky music plays, right? So we're getting the feeling that things are getting started. 
Conway, our perhaps failed businessman, we don't know, checks behind the curtains at one point and finds that the window is boarded, which is red fucking flag. He seems to kind of like shrug it off like all these rich people who knows what they're doing, but like, not good. They settle down for a dinner of foie gras and steak. Very expensive, very gourmet. Amazing. But... It's not amazing if you're a vegetarian. Which Iris is. Oh my god. Okay. And this is when things start getting a little twisted. Lamrick asks how much it would take for Iris to eat the steak. And of course, this is extremely uncomfortable. She's like, oh no, I've been a vegetarian for so long. I can't imagine eating this meat. It's just not for me, whatever. But he puts $10,000 on the table and she ends up accepting and he mocks her saying like a lifetime of discipline wiped away by a mere $10,000. But like right before that, he says, I refuse to accept that you don't have a price. You can eat the meat, but you won't. So like, he's so good at playing both sides of the argument being like, well, this is what you're here for. You're not going to like do this new experience. And then being like, oh, you caved in. Mm-hmm. He's so evil. Manipulation nation. Okay. Then quickly, we are on to Conway. Lamrick notices he's not drinking any wine. Well, at first, he's defensive. He's like, son of your business. But then he's like, I've been a recovering alcoholic. It turns out that he has been sober for 16 years, which is big. But Lamrick also mocks him. He offers him $10,000 to drink the wine in front of him, and he refuses. He's like, it's different than just being a vegetarian. Like, no. So then Lamrick offers him $50,000 to drink an entire decanter of whiskey. And Conway accepts. You could tell that this actor did really well. Mm -hmm. Just kind of like that internal battle. And I made note here that no one is sticking up for each other. Like no one is being like, dude, that's a fucked up thing to say. Or that's a fucked up thing to ask of somebody. And I wrote that like it shows they're all equally desperate and they all have a price. Mm. Because they're all there for a reason. And that's what we're gathering through this exercise is that they've all come to this dinner party because they have something going on. They all have things that they need to pay off or they have something that needs to go away. And Shepard even says that saying like, you're here essentially begging me for money. How is this not any of my business? Like when Conway said, it's not your business as to why I don't drink. So it's very quickly turned on its head of, oh, this is a dinner party. And, you know, we just like to play this game to see who I can help the most versus like, you're here asking me for a handout. So you're going to do whatever the fuck I tell you. Again, another amazing example of Lamerick able to use his words to get what he wants out of these people. I mean, of course, like, You're going to agree with him when it's framed like that. Like, you're here, you're going to do what I say, I'm giving you money. But of course, you know, we as the audience members might be thinking about it differently. I mean, are these people even like aware of what's going on at this point? I imagine it must be incredibly confusing for them. Like, when have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who offers you like thousands of dollars to do something that they just want to see you do? Like, that's so strange. And then especially, I guess, after Iris took that bite of meat, which I'm not going to say doesn't have some emotional weight to it, but in the long scheme is inconsequential, and that there is a stack of money sitting in front of her, it automatically opens the door to, this is a little bit legit, and the stakes are risen a little bit. The stakes. (laughs) (laughs) The foie gras. The foie gras. (laughs) 
But yeah, you're right. So people are probably looking at that like, all right, I want some of that. Yeah, like when's he going to ask me? But this is where he introduces the game. The dinner plates are cleared and it's game time. And he says the name of the game is Would You Rather? And he lays out the rules that you get two choices. Neither of them are appealing. But whatever you choose, you must do or you are eliminated. And then he also uses the words, if you are eliminated or if you are unable to continue the game, you are eliminated. So like, what the fuck does that mean? It's going to get eliminated. A euphemism for death. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. It is. It definitely is. Yeah. And then Cal even asks, okay, like, why is this a competition? Like, you have the money. Why can't you just help all of us? And Shepard goes on this rant. (laughs) And it's like, oh, my God, I want to talk about this. He says, it's all about decision making in its rawest form. There's no better window into a person's character than the decisions that they make and how they make them and how one applies rationale and ethics and reason while under duress. Tonight will ultimately prove whether you deserve our help. Okay, let's dissect that for a second. So Shepard is saying that you can see somebody's character only when you see the decisions that they make when under duress, which if we're looking at this through a sociocultural or socioeconomic view, you would think it's the opposite. And I think in reality, it's the opposite. People make decisions better when their needs are met. Mm -hmm. None of these people's needs are met. Thus, they have to make decisions that compromise their ethics, their rationale, their reason. In the same degree, it's like if your family is starving, kids are hungry, and you steal food. Mm -hmm. That is more ethical than it is unethical. But he is- Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean. What is that? From Les Mis? I've never seen it. Sorry. (gasps) Oh, my God. Okay, well, that's okay. I was thinking Robin Hood. Oh, Robin Hood's a great example. Yeah. That's the thing. Whenever I think of Robin Hood, I think of, like, the Shrek musical. It all comes back to Shrek. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's also interesting, too, that he is giving this monologue about showing one's true character. And I'm like, what about your true character, sir? I feel like you are under no duress tonight, and we've seen more of your character than anyone else's. Mm Mm-hmm. So I do think that the irony in that moment is pretty strong. So also something I noticed is Lamarck takes the time to explain that the game, Would You Rather, is not based on intelligence or skill. It's based on snap judgments, which again, I think is really interesting. Like, you know, if you want to give somebody a fair game of anything, like usually you would want it to be something that they were good at or they had practice. Like this is all people judging people. Like if you're going to do would you rather, you know, none of these people in this room have ever met before. They're just going to be making choices based on what? A snap judgment. Again, is that really showing character? Is that just showing like one's own life experience impacting this brief moment in time? And then, of course, the stakes get higher and higher as this becomes a matter of life and death. And then how can you tell anything? So it is heating up. Shepard gives them the opportunity to leave the game. Yes. Conway almost leaves the game, but you could tell he's very intoxicated at this point. So then he just takes another swig and sits back down. And the game starts with Bevins rolling in a shock machine. And it looks old. And immediately, as, you know, things start to get set up, Conway tries to leave again, but he's told it's too late. But he, you know, has an outburst. He's like, I see what you're doing. I see the way you're treating us. This is so messed up. 
And as he turns to leave, Bevins pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head. And we are here. All right. Like, you know, we've been kind of dancing around, but we are here. There's no denying it. Immediately, the movie kind of falls into this silent moment with this really dramatic but beautiful music. Surprisingly beautiful music. (laughs) (laughs) The characters, we can see them grappling with what they've just seen, what that means for them. And it is a very, like, sobering moment. So the name of the game is Electrocution. (laughs) Essentially, there are these two helmets with these metal pads that go on either side of your temple. And one is placed on Cal, and then one is placed on Amy, who is our emo alternative girl. And Amy is played by Sasha Gray, who is most well-known for her award-winning work as a performer in the adult film industry. But she's also in a handful of other films, such as this one. Yes, so it's Cal and Amy... And he's given two buttons, a blue button and a red button. And he's pretty much told, shock yourself or shock Amy. Cal takes one for the team, shocks himself. And they're not little zaps. No. They're like going to cause like full convulsions. And especially like on your head. Very scary. It's not like, you know, where you pull the fake piece of gum and then your fingers get zapped a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like this is definitely leveled up from that. Next up is Amy and Linda. No timer needed. Amy just immediately chooses to zap Linda, who, again, Linda is an older woman. She's definitely the oldest one there. And she has the added layer of being in a wheelchair, which will become relevant later in the next game. And Amy even says, well, we're competing, right? So you could tell that she's all out going for blood. Linda's next. It seems like she might, I don't know, have to miss her turn because she has passed out from the aggression of the shock. But she comes to, and in a choice between shocking herself or Peter, the gambler, she shocks Peter. And then there's a turn between Peter and Travis that we don't see where we find out that Peter does shock Travis. But we don't see it because we get another cut to a seat with Dr. Barton. He retrieves a gun from his safe and then goes into his car. So... Okay, his guilty conscience is getting to him. He's moving. He's, he's moving. He's grooving. So the <laughs> next turn we see is Travis and Lucas. Travis does shock Lucas because he had just received a shock from Peter. And then it's between Lucas and Iris, but Lucas chooses to shock himself and not shock Iris. And I will say that Lucas is very much coded as the heartthrob here. You know, he is wearing probably the best fitting suit that we see of all the men there. And he is about Iris's age, especially because he sits next to Iris. And people who sit next to each other are often kind of pitted against each other in these rounds. We see him very much take a protective role over her, which kind of is giving like very chivalrous vibes. And we were kind of talking about before we recorded if Lucas would have shown the same chivalry to any of the other players had he been sitting beside them. Because, I don't know, is he favoring Iris anyway? Because she's young, his age, she's cute. I don't know. But this is one of the first moments where we really see him overtly kind of taking that protective role for her. And that's the thing. Iris isn't playing the role of a damsel either, though, because then she has the choice between her and Cal and Iris chooses to shock herself because Cal had already taken a shock for Amy. So if we're keeping score here, Cal, Lucas and Iris are the only ones that chose to shock themselves. Mm. And those are the three that we met in the beginning. So it's like, okay, like these are the people we're supposed to be paying attention to. They're all sitting next to each other on the one side of the table with Travis. So, okay, we're doing this. That game ends, and then the men come in and start lacing the walls with plastic wrap and drop sheets, which is very Dexter, not a good sign. 
Lucas is trying to get them all to mobilize, but Julian kind of comes in and mocks them, saying, you agreed to be here. You're asking my family for a handout. The least you could do is show a little fucking respect, you pig. Travis, who is the Iraq vet, challenges him and says, oh, you little bitch, whatever. And Julian says, you made a mistake by opening your mouth. Oh, my God. Also, Intercut is the Barden, Barden, Bardem, Javier Bardem <laughs> arc. He's not in this movie. Doc. We can call him Doc. Doc. He has, he has arrived at the house. Okay. So now Lamerick introduces the next round. Before, the contestants had 15 seconds to decide what they were going to do. This round, they have 30 seconds. The stakes are higher. They can choose to either stab whoever is in the round with them in the leg with an ice pick or strike a different person three times with a jambok. Now, in the movie, it's described as an African whipping stick. But according to IMDb trivia, it just talks a little bit more about what it's made with. The jambok is a leather whip traditionally made from hippopotamus or rhino hide and used to herd cattle. So we're getting the sense that it's very tough and it can do a lot of damage quickly because of the way that it's made. So Iris is up first. She is posed with a choice to either stab Cal in the thigh with an ice pick or whip Travis three times with the jambok. And Lucas... I believe he's a medical student. Oh, maybe. He's the one that proposes this. Yes, because he pretty Mm -hmm. much says, like, listen, there's an artery in your thigh, and that would be very dangerous. Like, you will bleed out and die. And they don't know much about this Schombach yet, so they're like, okay. And then Travis is like, yes, Iris, do this. This is fine. So after some coaxing and one bad hit... Iris hits Travis three times with the Jean-Bach, but it's not just like a whip. Like it leaves holes in the back of his dress shirt and three very large bloody gashes on his back. Yes, very gruesome. And so then Lucas is next. He has a choice to stab Iris or again, whack Travis thrice. So obviously, because of what has happened previously between Travis and Julian, Travis is being targeted. Travis is like, it's got to be me again, you know, because of this previous conversation about the artery in the leg. So he's hit three more times and he is suffering very much at this point. Also, as this is all happening, I call him Little Lamerick. Julian is giggling, which is very disturbing. And also Lamerick is eating snacks. Like we saw him on the sofa. More nuts. He's like a fucking bird. He's eating his fucking nuts. (laughs) He's just fucking, I don't even know. But again, very disturbing as they are clearly overlooking the events at the table in a very like gleeful manner. Like like it's like they're watching a football game. They're looking for entertainment and they're getting it here. So it's Travis's turn and he has a choice between stabbing Lucas or being whipped three times by Bevins. Oh my God. And Travis is like, I'm not stabbing anybody I won't do it. You know, Lucas is like, come on, man, you can do it. Like, I'm giving you permission. And Travis is like, no, I'm not doing it. And takes three more lashings. So he's gotten lashed nine times at this point. And he is left retching from the pain. Yeah, he's biting down on his tie. You could tell that he's really, really, really not doing very well. Now it's Peter's turn. He can either choose to stab Linda in the leg or give Travis another three hits. 
Now he chooses to stab Linda in the leg because if we remember, she is paralyzed from the waist down. So he's thinking, okay, Travis is in such bad shape. Linda can't feel this anyway. This seems like the best decision to make. But as soon as he stabs her and removes the knife, he sees that she starts bleeding profusely and realizes he has hit the major artery. Not good. He tries to take off his belt to use it as a tourniquet. He tries to implore Lamerick and Bevins to get medical help. No one is listening. So he's just kind of left trying to figure out what to do here. But it is Linda's turn next. And she chooses to stab Amy instead of give Travis the lashings because that is still the only other choice in this game. And I'm kind of wondering, like, do you think that was revenge from earlier or just... I also don't know that Linda actually stabbed her because, like, she gets hit, but then Amy elbows her in the fucking face and says, you scratched me, you bitch. So it's like, did she actually get a stab in? Like, does that count? Mm. Well, they let it slide. I know. So it's Amy's turn, and Lambert gives her the choice. And I think this is because Lambert has realized that she's out for blood. Lambert gives her the choice, you can whip Travis or stab anybody here. Mm. So she walks right up to Iris. Mm -hmm. She's saying, duck duck. She is predatory as fuck. She says, can I stab them anywhere? And he's like, yeah, why not? Well, he says anywhere below the shoulders. Oh, yeah. Which is like, oh, my God. That's like like a lot of space. That's a lot of ground to cover. But yeah, she picks Iris, stabs her in the side. We were talking about this before recording. I understand Amy's logic here. Especially with the presence of Lucas, who is being very protective of Iris. Like, Mm -hmm. let's look at the optics of this. Iris is a young, college-aged, blonde, white woman. Amy is a brunette, not too much older than Iris, but, like, not as, like, innocent and virtuistic and almost, like, sacrificial lamb looking as Iris is, right? And Iris also appears to have made at least two alliances with Cal in addition to Lucas. And I bet Amy sees that and knows that she's kind of doing this on her own. Because she even says, in case you haven't realized yet, this is a game about eliminating each other. So it makes sense being that Iris hasn't really been dealt any consequence yet. Well, she shocked herself, but she has been spared. And I think Amy's noticing that and Amy's realizing no one's saving me here. So I have to go after her before she comes after me. Yeah. I mean, obviously she stabs her in the side, which is like a really personal, gruesome injury. But you're right, because Lucas tends to her and he says that he thinks that Amy missed anything serious, which I don't know how he could tell so quickly, but that ties back to what you said about maybe he's a medical student. Well, yeah, because then when Peter had stabbed Linda, you know, he was telling him, oh, do the tourniquet this, do it this tight. So it's Uh, and he's dressed really nice. So like he's giving everyone medical mm. advice. That's the vibe I got from him is that that he's like a medical student. Meanwhile, Travis passes out from his injuries. And also, Doc is still lurking outside of the house. He has arrived. He finds an open window, and now he is in the house, okay? So what is this? Like, the fourth or fifth time that we cut to Barden just kind of doing his thing? It's annoying. Like, we get this just side plot of him sneaking into the house because he feels guilty about Iris. But yes, Travis collapses, and then Linda dies. She bleeds out from her injuries. So it's Cal's turn. He can either stab Lucas or finish off Travis. And at this point, it seems like Amy's previous monologue is ringing loud and clear in his head. He decides, because Travis is in such awful shape, to finish off Travis and spare Lucas. 
After that, Bevins checks on Travis. He's still breathing, but obviously he's in super bad shape. He can't keep playing. So they take him away to some, I don't know, room or place where he could just die slowly. Awful. Like they even say he could live for days or like weeks. Yeah. I mean, that is where this rule of or unless they are unable to continue comes in. It's like, oh, I'd hate to see what that condition is. As they prepare the next game, they all decide to try to escape minus Amy. Amy just kind of cowers in a corner. There's some scuffling. Iris is able to stab the ice pick into one of the help's hands, and she escapes into the house, where Cal takes the Jambach and advances on Shepard, but Shepard pulls out a gun and shoots Cal, and Cal ends up dying. Very sad. So Bevins and Julian are deployed to go look for Iris, And we also know that Barton is in the house at this point. The only ones left being Amy, Lucas, and Peter are shoved back into their seats. Julian finds Iris trying to climb out a basement window, which I was like, did you not run out the front door? Or was there a scene that I missed? Well, it sucks because that's the same window that we just saw the doctor come in. Oh, really? So we would we know that that's unlocked. And if she had just had a little bit more time, she probably could have escaped. But Julie got to her first. But Julian catches her, gets her to the ground, mounts her, and with his actions, makes it very much seem like he intends on raping Iris. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of foreshadowed earlier on where Shepard was saying to Julian, like, we can't have an incident like last year. You aren't so much as to touch a participant. So we can tell that Julian has some problems. Yes. Iris fights him off and she stabs him somewhere in the leg and incapacitates him enough just as the doctor arrives. Iris, of course, is like, what the fuck? Not who she expected to see. And he's about to explain why he's there when he is quickly shot and killed. Which is like, you mean to tell me? (laughs) (laughs) You intercut his traveling to this estate five times with the story. (laughs) And this is like the briefest period of time we'd seen him. Like he was there for two fucking seconds. Like they had us thinking that he was really going to make some kind of difference. He accomplished nothing. Nothing. It's not even like he served as a distraction so that Iris could stab Julian. Like this was after the fact. He's like, I meant to explain. And then Bevins, yeah, just fucking shoots him. So upsetting and probably like really good foreshadowing that like, don't be hoping for anything (laughs) (laughs) because like, it's not going to work out. So Bevins, of course, has arrived and you can see on Bevins' face when Julian tries to convince him that Iris is the one that attacked him, like for no reason or cause. You can tell that Bevins doesn't believe him, especially if this has happened before. Bevins does not fucking like Julian. You can just fucking tell. But Bevins is working and he works for Daddy Lamrick. And so he's like, I'm telling your dad about your behavior. Bevins comes from the same school that the butler in Ready or Not came from. Oh, fucking seriously? There must be a like a school of butlers <laughs> and like the help ready to do unsavory things for their very big paychecks. Oh my god, I love that. Wait, so you're that's a joke. He didn't actually come from the same school. Yes, there's a school for butlers of (laughs) masochistic, psychopathic, rich people. (laughs) I said that is because they said something about him being a part of an organization. 
Well, he was an interrogator for the FBI or oh, something right, like right, that. Right. Not like uh, he's something that's something. No, that's Bevan's character. But I, yes, I was making a joke. I'm so gullible. <laughs> I was like, really? Oh my god. Anyway, Lamrick goes off to talk to his son after hearing about what he did. Then he comes back and he apologizes to Iris on his son's behalf in a very gross way. Since the loss of his mother, my son lacks restraint. Ew. It's such basic, like, rich people dialect, but nothing else would make more sense coming from fucking Shepard at this point. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So they introduce the next game, which is known versus unknown. And the only people left at this point are Lucas, Iris, Peter, and Amy. So Amy, the emo girl, Peter, the gambler, Iris, and Lucas. So they are each given an envelope, which is meant to represent an unknown punishment, And then a barrel is brought into the room and it's filled with water. And that is the known punishment. And Shepard explains, you can either be held underwater for two minutes or do the punishment that's in your envelope. But if you open the envelope, you have to do that punishment. Peter goes first and Peter goes on this impossibly long rant about how because he's a gambler and because they knew he was a gambler, they must have known what he was going to do because gamblers make choices and gamblers have logic. So that it's a very long-winded way to say he chooses the envelope. And the punishment that the envelope says is that he has to light off a firecracker in his hand. But when they bring it out, it's actually a quarter stick of dynamite that needs to be duct taped to his hand. Lucas yells out, just drop it before it goes off to try to assist him. Lamrick hears that and is like, secure the dynamite to his hand. So Lucas, I know, fuck. Just keep your fucking mouth shut. Very upsetting. Like one of the times, you know, we see players try to help each other and it just backfires. So he gets a quarter stick of dynamite duct tape to his hand. Lamrick makes some kind of comment. Maybe it's a dud. And then he's like, do I have to do it again if it's a dud? And he's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, because it's not going to be a dud. The odds of that are so small. There is a moment, however, when the fuse is done lighting. We think it might be a dud. It is not. Peter gets his hand blown off, but then dies of a heart attack. And when I say only, I'm not going to say that lighting a quarter stick of dynamite (laughs) only in your hand is like, oh, it only looked like he had a couple fingers on it. But, like, the way he was holding it made it look like he was only really holding it between, like, two fingers. Yeah. And then it was duct taped to his hand. So it's like, I'm not going to say if you blow off part of your thumb and your middle finger that that's not going to really hurt, but I don't think it's going to kill you. Yeah, Peter is dead from shock, which is kind of unsatisfactory, but whatever. Lucas is next. He chooses the card, and it's a picture of an eyeball. And he is told he has to slice open his eyeball with a razor blade. And this is the first time we really see Lucas lose his fucking cool. I said the actor did really well here. He did. And this is so interesting because it makes me wonder if that was intentional. Because we know because of Peter's dialogue that he's a gambler and this game is about gambling is that targeted at him somehow. Mm -hmm. And then later we find out a little bit of like Amy's situation, why she might be less than thrilled about sticking her head in a barrel of water. And so now I'm thinking about this eyeball and wondering like if it has anything to do with Lucas's story, which we never really hear, but maybe that's why he became so freaked out so quickly. I don't know. I mean, maybe anyone would. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe because he might be a medical student. He might know, like, how bad it hurt. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody in that situation would do well. But he does so good at, you know, lifting the mirror up to his face to do it and then dropping it and just screaming. Like, you could Ugh. tell that he's really fighting with himself. And in the last possible seconds, he does slit his eye Ugh. open. But he lives. Yes. And it's Iris next. Iris chooses the water. She doesn't want to go with the fucking gamble. And while she has her face held underwater by Bevins, she has a flashback to a conversation with Rally, her brother, while they were in the car together. And he talks about having a bad dream about how they're all on the boat and all the people he loves are stuck under this upturned boat. And every time he grabs onto the boat to try to stop himself from drowning, he's pushing the people he loves further underwater too. And he says, the more everyone tries to help me, the further down we both sink. So I just, and then he makes a motion that says that he just kind of lets go, oh. which is like a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. And we do get some dialogue from Rally earlier in the movie that kind of talks about like, you know, are you sick of taking care of me all the time? Like, don't you want a life? And then, you know, of course, Iris being the older sister that she is, is like, you are my life. Of course, like, we're going to get through this together, blah, 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 blah. But you could tell that Rally understands that he is putting a weight on her that he doesn't want to put on her. And it comes back. But Iris survives, survives two minutes underwater. And Shepard opens her envelope and reveals what her punishment would have been. And it would have been that all of her teeth would have needed to be extracted. Oh my god. So yeah, she made a good call. He's also very impressed that she lived. He says this is actually designed to drown people. So he's very tickled that somebody survived. <laughs> so Amy is next. And she decides that she does not want to do the water, but she opens her envelope. It's a picture of a barrel with four on it, which means that she has to do the barrel anyway, but she has to be held under for four minutes instead of two. We get a little bit of backstory here. Lam what is the comment he makes to her? He said, you were trying to get away from the barrel, trying to get away from drowning. How long did it take your husband to hold your little girl under while he drowned her? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So not good. But she has a good attitude about it. She's like, well, I guess beggars can't be choosers. And it's like, girl, you don't need to be like... She is surprisingly resolved. Yeah. But her head is shoved under by Bevins before she even really has a chance to compose herself. And Iris exclaims, like, she wasn't ready. It doesn't make a difference. Because she wasn't ready, she had, like, no air in her lungs. She dies very quickly. And then that ends the round. We have two remaining players. Yes, Lucas versus Iris. I wrote, at this point, have we forgotten that Iris has been stabbed in the motherfucking gut? Because yeah, she's, she she's walking around with no, no so much as a limp. She was running through the house. Shepard asks her to get up and like sit opposite of Lucas instead of next to him. And she's like walking fine. I'm like, have we forgotten that she was stabbed in the fucking gut? But sure, whatever. They have to do a coin toss. And Shepard says, you know, you want to win this coin toss because historically whoever wins this coin toss has a better chance of winning. Iris wins the coin toss. And the two choices that she is prompted with is to end the game empty handed, but both of them can leave right now unscathed or, and then Shepard and Bevins present her with a pistol, shoot Lucas and win. This is where we start hearing from Lucas about his backstory. He tries to reason with her. He's like, this is great. We can go. He starts saying, I have three sisters and that's all he can get out before Iris shoots him in the heart. And then we hear her sobbing and see her sobbing as Lamerick and Bevins clap. The game has ended. You knew it was coming, but at the same time, it was like, 
And the thing is, like, I kept thinking to myself, Lucas would have never done that. But then you don't know that because you don't know him. And also, how do you know that Lamerick would have let them leave? He would have killed them both. There's no way he would have just fucking let them leave. He doesn't want this shit getting out. He can't risk it. You know what this reminds me of? What? My anti-theory for It Follows, how Jay was like plotting with Paul the entire time and knew that Paul would like fuck her eventually so that she could get the (gasps) entity away from him. It's like, was Iris... Once she knew the name of the game, like, yes, she's a pretty blonde girl and she was able to work with Lucas and make it so that even if he had won the coin toss, he would have chosen for them both to leave. Again, there wasn't like a lot of opportunity for Iris to charm Lucas or to really like work her way into him, but she had a lot of factors on her side to get to the end of the game, just in terms of sympathy alone. It's very interesting. She's not just going to sit there and not be strategizing. Yeah. So this could easily be part of her strategy. Wow. Okay. So she's dropped off at home with enough money for not only her brother's procedure and a top spot in the donor line for him to receive bone marrow, but enough money for her to return to school and finish out her degree. Lots of money. She walks inside and peeks into her brother's room and sees that he's still sleeping. It's the wee hours of the morning. So she showers, tends to her stab wound, okay, (laughs) which is okay. And then, you know, enough time has gone by. She goes in to check on her brother again, walks into the room more. We see empty prescription bottles on the bed as she rolls over her brother's dead body and starts crying. What did you do? What did you do? And we know that in her absence, her brother has, maybe because of the guilt he felt, the dreams he's had, taken his own life. It's very much like The Mist. Have you seen The Mist? No. (laughs) It has a very similar ending where it's like, you think everything's going to be fine, and then you're like, wait, and it's it's crazy, but... Yeah, that's the end of the fucking movie, so it's like... Yeah, very much like a that-was-all-for-nothing kind of feeling. Yeah, it's very bleak, very bleak. I mean, you know, if we're looking at this in terms of the whole plot, the idea that money might solve your problems or this thing getting taken care of would, like, solve the problems, you know, it didn't solve the underlying guilt that Riley had about feeling like he was a leech on his family or feeling like people were taking care of him all the time or he didn't have agency of himself or whatever that it is. And I don't think that Iris ever failed in reassuring him, which it makes it so much more sad. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's just this idea that like you could have everything work out in your favor and things can still go wrong. And it's, I mean, I don't know what the messaging is, if there is messaging, but it's just, it's a gut punch for sure. Like maybe there are no winners in games like that. I don't know. But I do have some things. Yeah. So the first thing I have is about the point of view of the cameras in the movie. It's from an article titled Viewer Participation and Decision Making in Would You Rather by Gwen from Horror Homeroom. (laughs) She writes, quote, the most stunning thing about this movie is the way that it is shot. Once inside the house, the viewer becomes part of the game. We are privy to the side conversations and gossip as we meet the other guests one by one. We seem to sit at the head of the dinner table, and for the rest of the movie, we share visual images that support this perception. This point of view is exponentially intensified each time that a participant is given a choice of what they would rather. It is an unconscious reaction to think about what we would do in each circumstance. 
If you were a vegetarian, would you throw away a quote lifetime of discipline and commitment to a cause by eating meat for $10,000? The scenarios get tougher and the viewer continues to choose. The process of making firm choices and accepting the consequences is a life lesson. Would you rather reveals that in life there are always choices? Some of these choices are equally unappealing, but there are options nonetheless. The film pushes us to consider the circumstances surrounding the choices, weighing known versus unknown, while also considering chance. It will be interesting to see what version of you will emerge after watching this film. Would you maim or kill innocent people for money? Could you hold fast to your value system in a life or death scenario? Will you feel bad when you don't? Would you rather's skillful mastery of camera angles and forced viewer participation ensure that you will be pressured into making some difficult choices during these 93 minutes? It's interesting that they talk about the camera angles because I remember, I believe it's after Conway is dispatched and we get a shot, I believe from Julian's point of view, looking at the table And you can see Cal, Lucas, and Travis, and then Peter, Linda, and Amy, and Iris is hidden. Like, you can tell there's a fourth chair there, but you can't see Iris at all in between Lucas and Cal. And I remember taking note of that, and I forgot to say it, but it's almost like people don't see her as a threat, or that she's not being perceived as actually, like, playing the game. So it is interesting talking about camera angles and talking about, like, who we're looking at and the choices that people are making and the fact that she made the first choice of the game and the last choice of the game. But she was so hidden in the middle of it that made her character just so much more impressive. She probably said the least. Yeah. She was very quiet. I mean, there were a couple moments, but I mean, compared to other characters, she was not giving away what she was feeling with her words. And I don't think that anything about her backstory was ever revealed in the game. Like, obviously, Shepard knew about it, but it's not like she ever told Cal or Lucas, and it's not like he ever made a comment in front of the group about her brother. So nobody knew what she was there for. And I think because that was known and because there was that exposition dump in the beginning where it's like, oh, that person's a vet, that person's a failed businessman, that person's a gambler, this person is paralyzed and might have medical debt, you know, like it made her stronger because no one knew what she was fighting for, which then made her less of a threat. Mm hmm. Did you feel like you were thinking what you would do as you were watching the movie? I don't know. Like, part of me wants to feel like I would have been the person to just... Like, if I was in Conway's position, I had gotten $50,000 already. I would have been like, wow, that's like a year's salary of what I'm used to. And part of me thinks I would have just, like, pieced the fuck out. But who's to say that I wouldn't have gotten on the other side of the door, shot in the head, and that $50,000 taken back? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's such a good point. I just don't see these people letting the quote-unquote players go. Exactly. Because what if they leave? What are they going to say? It's too much drama. It's too much controversy. Or, and think about how easy it would have been spun where Conway would have been able to say, like, they gave me $50,000. And I'm like, well, they gave you $50,000. And mm-hmm. you made the choice to drink. You know what I mean? Yeah. But another thing that I was interested in as we were watching this or as I was watching this movie, but as we were talking about it, is the history of disadvantaged folks playing games in hopes of winning money or glory for the entertainment of the wealthy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And part of this is because of Netflix's 2022 series, Squid Games. And so that was also on my mind as we were watching and talking about this movie. So I did a little bit of research. And of course, this is an amateur's attempt at research, trying to find maybe some patterns or like, checkpoints in time where this kind of story was prevalent or where it would come from. 
because, I mean, this movie is 2012, 10 years later, we have a hit Netflix series. Obviously, this is a template that is resonating with people or that is interesting or has something to say. So would you rather met mixed reviews upon release? Okay, some people liked it, some people didn't. But Squid Game's super high streaming rate and gleaming reviews show that the storytelling template featuring the poor playing games in hope of winning money or glory and or for the entertainment of the wealthy is one that still bears weight in our society. Other well-known examples of this template exist. So I'm thinking like Hunger Games series, as well as the film adaptations, and Shirley Jackson's 1941 short story, The Lottery, which tells of a town's grisly tradition of choosing one person at random each year to stone to death in the town square immediately come to my mind. So while these examples seem more allegorical, exaggerated circumstances to underscore class disparity and corrupted systems in America and around the globe, Real live games exploiting the population have taken place. The Colosseum in ancient Rome seems to have served as the ultimate playing field for games with massive crowds centering around survival of the fittest. According to ushistory.org, a human history of sacrifice may have paved the way for these modern stories. Quote, the Etruscans of Northern Italy originally held public games, which featured such events as gladiator battles and chariot races as a sacrifice to the gods. The Romans continued the practice, holding games roughly 10 to 12 times in an average year. Paid for by the emperor, the games were used to keep the poor and unemployed entertained and occupied. The emperor hoped to distract the poor from their poverty in the hopes that they would not revolt. Like many modern professional sports stadiums, the Colosseum had box seats for the wealthy and powerful. The upper level was reserved for the commoners. Under the floor of the Colosseum was a labyrinth of rooms, hallways, and cages where weapons were stored and animals and gladiators waited for their turn to perform. The gladiators themselves were usually slaves, criminals, or prisoners of war. Occasionally, the gladiators were able to fight for their freedom. Criminals who were sentenced to death were sometimes thrown into the arena unarmed to serve their sentence. Some people, including women, actually volunteered to be gladiators. They were willing to risk death for the possibility of fame and glory. Many gladiators went to special schools that trained them how to fight. A few gladiators boxed. They used metal gloves to increase cutting and bleeding. Some gladiatorial contests included animals, such as bears, rhinos, tigers, elephants, and giraffes. Giraffes. <laughs> I miss that. Wow. Most often, hungry animals fought other hungry animals, but sometimes hungry animals fought against gladiators in wild beast hunts. On rare occasions, the animals were allowed to maul and eat a human who was tied to a stake. Yeah, it reminds me of the careers in the Hunger Games. Yeah. Where it's like they went to special preparatory training in schools to be able to be in the Hunger Games and they would all volunteer to be in the Hunger Games. And Hunger Games came out the same year this did, which I'm not going to say like, <laughs> would you rather in the Hunger Games were on the same level of like public consciousness. But it's very interesting that it was riding that wave of the poor YA dystopian society competition shit didn't have like a little bit of a rub off on horror, yeah. maybe. It is interesting too, like the idea of these games at the Coliseum being used to keep the public at bay. It almost resembles like these rare charitable handouts being used as tools to keep the public at bay. Like there are opportunities. There are things you can do or people you can meet 
but it's not really solving any problems. I mean, it almost kind of reminds me of professional sports, like yeah. the mm-hmm. NFL almost, because it's like you take a lot of people from disadvantaged backgrounds and you give them millions and millions of dollars and then you give them CTE so that they yeah. <laughs> can like play football and like do all of these things and then end up with these brain conditions. But a city loves them for maybe a decade and then what happens? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know. This is speaking for someone who likes to watch football, but it's still like one of those things where it's like, who are these teams owned by? And like, what is the long term benefits? And like, that's again, like, they get these millions of dollars, and it's great. And I'm sure it really helps their families. But then long term, like, there's, there's so many consequences. That's it's like so crazy. It's weird thinking about the Coliseum and how like, it was actually a thing. Yeah. Because reading that little blurb, it just reminded me so much of the examples we've been talking about. Would you rather? Squid Games, The Hunger Games, Shrek. The Lottery, Shrek. <laughs> There's a Coliseum There's scene. There's literally a Shrek. Coliseum scene in Shrek. Like, it all comes back to Shrek. But, like, those are stories that aren't just allegorical, right? And, you know, the Coliseum is just one example. I'm sure, like, around the world, there might be other examples that can be connected to the story. This is just what I found immediately and what I, you know, thought of. Also, I think it's interesting that these games kind of came from the idea of human sacrifice, which again is the second installment of my game this episode, which is everything is religious. <laughs> like human sacrifice is practiced in many, many religions. So I don't know. Here we are again with roots in religion and another way that horror and religion are connected. I also like that this fits into the genre of party games turning into horror movies. <laughs> like, I really want to cover Truth or Dare soon because okay. it's like, you have Would You Rather, you have Truth or Dare. <laughs> These like stupid party games that people were able to kind of take and then turn into this horrific concept. Yeah. Let us know if you want us to cover Truth or Dare because <laughs> I want to I cover Truth or Dare even though it's not a very good movie. <laughs> it might be refreshing. Yeah. Are there winners in Truth or Dare? Too soon to say? It has an It Follows vibe, and that's what I'll say. Oh. That's what I'll say in terms of, like, are there winners? All right. Well, on that note, thank you to the person who requested this movie. If you would like to request a movie or movies, please feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com and or follow us on Instagram, also at thehorrorspodcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.